Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 16. Uh, we're in the middle of a series through the Sermon on the Mount, and so I'm so uh, glad that you are here uh, for this series. So we'll pick up in just a few moments, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 16. I would like to tell you this morning with confidence uh, that I am an extremely responsible driver. Unfortunately, uh, there is a fairly long record, the Cobb County Police Department, that shows several tickets for a variety of offenses. Maybe running a stop sign in my own neighborhood, which is probably not great, uh, to speeding. Uh, the best part of getting pulled over is when you have your children in the car with you. Uh, because the last time I was pulled over was about four years ago, but I still hear about it like it was yesterday on a regular basis in my family. It's one thing to think something of ourselves. Uh, to think that we are operating in a way that abides by the laws of the land, is another thing to see the number digitally on someone's radar gun as clear evidence that I did not follow the rules laid out for me in this particular instance. If you've been to downtown Kennesaw, right where on old 41, it changes to 25 miles an hour. That's my spot, all right? I've been pulled over in that storage unit place on numerous occasions because I have not made that adjustment to my speed correctly. Today, as we turn our attention to the text, Jesus is going to, in a way, hold up a radar gun to our lives. Uh, to say, I know what you think you are, and I know who you think you are, but I want to be very clear about the reality of your situation. Here's actually how fast you are moving. So let's pray together, ask God by his spirit to show us his truth in his word, then we'll read the text together. Father, we ask in these moments uh, that you would illuminate, make clear, make known your truth uh, to our hearts from your word. And uh, God, we just ask that you would do that work. I ask you to do it for each and every one of us today. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse uh, 17, chapter 5. This is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I hope you remember the context from the past couple of weeks. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching to people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. So we started with the Beatitudes. He said, these are the character qualities of people who belong to God's kingdom. And then like Mike taught us last week, salt and light. 
the idea is then these people of character who exhibit these kingdom qualities of the Beatitudes live those qualities out in the world around them. And then Jesus gives us what I believe to be the thesis statement for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling us in this paragraph, this is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of our time together. My relationship with the law and the prophets. Now, you you might remember from verse 1, chapter 5, what does Jesus do? He goes up on a hillside, sits down, and teaches. The reason that this setting is so important, that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, wants us to know that, It's because he's drawing a clear line between Moses bringing the law down from the mountain to the people to Jesus now giving us a new law. So that's kind of the idea or the context here. So let's ask this first question. What's Jesus's relationship to the law and the prophets? That's the phrase he uses. Now, that phrase, the law and the prophets, is a shorthand phrase used in the first century to describe the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. So the first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are referred to as the law. And then the remaining of the scriptures is often referred to as the prophets. And so the way that Hebrew people would think about it in Jesus' day is Moses gave the law, and then the prophets are the rest of those books that are interpreting, explaining, helping us understand, and applying those first five books. So when Jesus uses this phrase, the law and the prophets, he's saying the entirety of what you hold to be your scripture has something to do with me. Now, the first five books... This law is really more than a law. If we go back, it's the story of the origins of people and Genesis, the story of the people of God and how God calls people to himself, the story of the Exodus. And here's what's important for us to all understand. This is going to help you down the road, especially in this message, going to help you. Is that those first five books are given in the context of a covenant relationship. And so what we see In the first five books of the Bible is God finds this guy, Abraham, and shows up and makes a covenant or a relational commitment to Abraham, right? We see the same thing with Moses. When God leads the people out of Israel, God shows up and makes a covenant or relational commitments to those people. And so we could really understand the entirety of the Old Testament in terms of this idea of covenant relationship, right? Now, also, if Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, then he's talking about more than just what we would think of as laws, right? In the context of these covenant relationships, we have historical narratives. We got stories. We got the story of the creation, the fall, the calling of Abraham, the life of Joseph, the story of God rescuing his people out of Egypt, the story of the kingdom of Israel uh, rising to prominence. We do have laws, moral imperatives, and ceremonial practices, and even civic laws for the people of Israel. We have doctrinal teachings, where in the first five books and through the prophets, they're saying, this is what God is like, and this is how you can know him. This is what people are like, and this is what people need. We have these things that we would call predictive prophecies. So there's times in the Old Testament where people are telling us what the future holds and what God will do in the future. And all of these make up this one single story of God that God has weaved this story for his covenant people. 
So with that in mind, then this is what Jesus says. Two things. He says, I didn't come to abolish that. In other words, what Jesus is saying, I didn't come to tear down this entire story of God. I'm not here to deconstruct it. I'm not here to destroy the law and the prophets. I'm not overthrowing them, and I'm not ignoring them. But, he says, I came to fulfill them. That these things, this entire story, he says, finds their completion, their high point in him. That Jesus came to finish the story or bring resolution to the story. So really what Jesus is saying here about himself is this entire story from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through your Old Testament scriptures has been about me. I've been on every page. Everything has been pointing to me. I'm the center of the story. So every covenant, every law, every teaching, every poem, all pointing forward to who Jesus is. Maybe we could use this illustration. Jesus is the puzzle piece that makes the entire picture make sense. Or if you're born in the 80s like me, Jesus is the magic eye. You guys remember these? You guys don't remember. You're too young. This side of the room doesn't remember them. But every kiosk in the mall when I was growing up had these magic eyes. And they were a picture that had a pattern in it. But behind the pattern was another picture. Right? Anybody remember that? And you had to stare at the picture in the right way, and they'd be like, let your eyes look through the painting, and da-da-da-da, and all this like weird stuff I could never do. But when it worked, all of a sudden, another image would come from the background to the foreground, and if you got it right, that was the only thing you could see. And so when Jesus came, he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's, he's saying this, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament was a pattern was a picture of certain things. But behind that picture was something else that God was at work doing. And when you see me, the image pops out and you now see it all rightly. This is actually what Matthew's been doing to this point in the book. If you were to flip through the first four chapters of Matthew, you would find that Matthew uses this word fulfill seven times. And sometimes he uses it about particular passages of Scripture from the Old Testament that we would call predictive prophecy. That Isaiah predicted that the Messiah, the coming Savior, will be born of a virgin, and Matthew says that's true. But also he uses it in some ways that aren't just about predictive prophecy, that are about all of these things in this much bigger story. And so Matthew's been setting us up through his entire book seven different times to point us to how Jesus is something or someone that's been talked about all the way through the Old Testament scriptures only so we get to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus could say it himself. So we could really just summarize it in this way. The whole witness of the Old Testament scriptures are ultimately pointing toward Jesus. Not just prophecies but the entirety of the entire thing. God's covenant with Abraham was pointing us toward Jesus. God's rescue of the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and delivering them to the promised land is a story that's pointing us forward to the real deliverer, Jesus. Even God's laws, like the Ten Commandments, are pointing us forward to Jesus. So then in verse 18, Jesus narrows his focus a little bit. 
and he uses a little more uh, technical way to view the law. And what he starts to talk about in verse 18 is this story of the Exodus. He uses the phrase of the law. So here's where we are, right? So remember, back up to the Old Testament. God delivers his people from Israel. They've already been saved from slavery, right? Remember this part of the story? And then God gives them the law, which we find in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy, which are just simply rules for engagement for people who are already in a relationship with God. Now, I don't want to belabor the point. When were the people saved from slavery? Before or after they got the law? Before, right? So then the law is given for a saved, rescued people of God. Make sense? All right. So then this is what Jesus says in verse 18. For then truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Here's what he says. Those rules, those laws, like the Ten Commandments, and there's a bunch more, that God gave to his people in Exodus and Deuteronomy will endure. They're not going to fade. They're still important. In fact, he says they go, they're going to endure until heaven and earth pass away and all is accomplished. What does he mean? Until this world is over. Until everything is done, the law continues, which means the law continues to serve a purpose here today. Does that make sense? If it's enduring, it's enduring for a reason. So what's the purpose of the law? Why do we still need it? Why is Jesus talking about it in the Sermon on the Mount? If Jesus fulfills it, then what's our relationship to us? Well, let's ask a question. What was the original purpose of God's law? One is the law showed God's character and nature. The law is a means by which God was teaching his people what he himself was like. So let's think about the Ten Commandments. A God who prohibits the worship of idols, of other gods, is a God who sees himself as supreme and ultimate of every way, a God who's worthy of all worship, adoration, and complete devotion. So do you see how that first, second commandment help us understand something about the nature and character of God? Or let's take, for instance, a God who prohibits adultery. That would teach us that a God who prohibits adultery is a God who values commitment and faithfulness in relationships. A God who prohibits murder is a God who values life. A God who prohibits bearing false witness is a God who loves the truth. A God who prohibits coveting our neighbor's belongings is a God who expects us to depend on him, be satisfied with him, and trust in him because he is dependable, knowable, and trustworthy. And so the law helped God's people understand God's character and nature. This is what God is like. The God who rescued you, this is his character. But secondly, the law did something else. The law helped God's covenant people know what their God required. The law showed very clearly to the people of Israel what God required of them. Like we have rules in all relationships. Saying these are the rules of engagement in this relationship. And so I'm married my wonderful wife, Kristen, and um, if I went out on a date with another woman, that would be a violation of the relationship, right? That would actually be a very deep violation of our relationship. Now, some of you single folks in here could go to dinner with a member of the opposite sex, and guess what? Not a violation of any relationship. 
the rule makes sense in the context of the relationship. And so these commandments are then a way, or the law is a way that we see clearly what God requires. But there is a problem, and there has always been a problem. The law of God is limited. It's always been limited. There are some things that the law could not accomplish or do. That doesn't mean that it is bad. It just means that it's limited in nature. So what can't the law do? Well, the first thing that the prophets explain to us is the law can't teach us to obey God. It could teach us what God requires, but it can't give us what we need to obey or to do what God requires. This, again, is the story of the entire Old Testament. What do we see over and over and over again? Are people confused about what God requires of them? No. Do they do it? No. Right? Which is why Ezekiel in chapter 36 of his book says that from speaking for God, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Check this out, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Is something wrong with the rules? No. Something is wrong with our ability to obey the rules, and the law itself is not enough to generate that. Instead, what the prophet said about the law is we need God. We need God to help us obey his rules. Let's go back to speeding, right? You can tell me exactly what Cobb County requires. I can know the speed limit at every turn. It could tell me how fast I am going and how fast I should not be going, what's safe for this road and what's safe in my neighborhood, right? But the law can't require in me a desire to do it. The law, I can say I want to be safe, so I'm going to obey it. I could say I care about my neighbor, so I'm going to obey it. But the rule didn't lead me there. Does that make sense? A heart led me to those places. Which is why when every single one of us get on 285 and the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, we're like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to die if I do that. Right? If you find somebody actually going the speed limit on 285, you're like, you're a moron. Speed up. We're all dying because of you, Mr. 48 miles an hour on 285. The law cannot create in me the ability to obey it. It also can't do one other thing. It can't save me, and it never has been able to save me. It instead points me to my need to be saved. So let's say I am speeding. I'm speeding through somewhere in Cobb County, and let's say I take a turn too fast, and I crash my car into a ditch. The speed limit sign is not able to pull me out of the ditch. My understanding that there is a speed limit isn't able to get me out of the ditch. What I need is somebody with a tow truck to show up and rescue me from the predicament that I created in my own life by speeding and taking a turn too fast. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so knowing the rules can't save me when my life gets off track and when I wreck my car into a ditch. Instead, what the law shows me is my need to be saved. Shows me clearly that I'm in a ditch and I can't get out on my own. And so that's why Jesus says the law lasts or endures. 
Because the law serves the same purpose today that it has always served. Not to save us, but to help us see. For some of us who believe wholeheartedly that if we are good people who do what God requires most of the time, let me just say you are swinging and missing on the purpose of God's law. It's not here to save you. It's here to help you see that you need to be saved, that your car is in a ditch and there is nothing you can do about it. The law serves to help us still see God rightly here today. See his righteousness, his holiness, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his love, his mercy, and his grace. And the law serves to help us see ourselves rightly. To see how we measure up to what God requires, or more accurately, how we fall short of what God requires. And to see our need. Again, this is why Jesus starts the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor in spirit. Saying blessed are the people who see how far short of God's law they fall and realize that they are spiritually needy. The law can also help us to see how to love God and others. How to love God. The law actually defines for us what it means to love God. That to love God, that means trusting him instead of our stuff. Being faithful to him instead of worshiping other gods. Adoring him above all things. Valuing what God values. Valuing life and purity and goodness and mercy and compassion and grace. The law teaches us how we actually love other people. We come to questions like, is it loving to sleep with someone outside of marriage? Or is it loving to defraud someone even if they don't know about it and they won't miss the money? Or is it loving to lie? God's word says, no, it's not. And so it instructs us on how to love God and other people. Spurgeon says this, the law never came to save men. It was never its intention at all. It came on purpose to make the evidence complete that salvation by works is impossible. And thus to drive the elect of God to rely wholly on the finished salvation of the gospel. Which means today the law continues to be necessary. Not necessary to save, that's never been its purpose, but necessary to help us see God and our need to him, need for him. Which also means God's law is good. It's not against you even when it says hard things to you. It's not your enemy, but a friend, even though it attacks your and my self-righteousness. The law serves to tell us a painful but necessary truth. Like a friend that points out the spinach that's stuck on our teeth. Which is why then Jesus says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches, them to others to, it teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Does it sound like to you that Jesus is in the business of relaxing what God requires? Relaxing the law often for us seems good for other people. It's not good to beat up other people or beat them down. And it often seems gracious and kind to say, it's okay. It's often gracious and kind to say to people, we think it's no big deal or everybody does it. But Jesus says, no, that's, 
actually not good to relax the law. Why? Because what's the purpose of the law? To help us see God and ourselves rightly. And when we relax the law, we actually make it harder for people to see God rightly, to see ourselves rightly, and to see our need to be saved. So when we as a church minimize what God requires, we are doing our friends and neighbors a great disservice. And if we're honest, we often do that not for their benefit, but for our own. Because who wants to be the party pooper? Who wants to be the person saying, actually, God has a high standard? But in doing so, not because of ill intent, but what we actually do is we help people persist in the belief that they don't need God. And it prevents our friends and neighbors from seeing that they are spiritually poor and bankrupt as well. So relaxing the law is not gracious and it's not kindness. It's the deepest unkindness of letting people live without seeing their need. Often just so we can feel more comfortable with ourselves. Or so we don't have to be honest about our own shortcomings. It's typically not an act of grace, but an act of self-preservation. And not something that Jesus did. In fact, instead of relaxing the law, what we are going to see over the next couple of weeks is Jesus doubles down on the law. He actually makes it more important and raises the standard even higher than we could possibly imagine. And he says, this higher standard that I'm about to give you is actually good for you to obey and good for you to teach others to obey. And then he absolutely lays down the hammer in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Righteousness in Matthew's gospel just simply means conforming to God's character. The Pharisees and the scribes were religious leaders of the day. Uh, They believed that God would return to Israel and set them free from Roman captivity. They're held captive by the Romans at this point. That they would be free if the people would just strictly obey God's law. And they don't see the same heart problem that Ezekiel saw, right? What does Ezekiel say? Do you remember that? Ezekiel says, the problem is not knowing the law. The problem is we don't have the heart to do it. We're not able to obey it. But instead, the Pharisees saw the problem as externally obeying every letter of the law. And actually, they added to the law, and they created an entire system just to ensure that people would obey the law. You know what that means? That means they were very, very good at it. And then Jesus says uh, to the crowd that day and to us today, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the dudes who do righteousness better than anybody else, you can't get into the kingdom. Conformity to God's law in your life must be greater than the guys who are the most serious about conformity to God's law. Do Do you hear how crazy that sounds? That's like saying, hey, no problem. You can get into God's kingdom if you can hit a baseball harder than Ronald Acuna Jr. Hey, no problem. You get to God's kingdom if you can star in more blockbuster movies than Tom Cruise. You can get into God's kingdom. It's easy. All you got to do is your compassion has to exceed Mother Teresa's compassion. Not only that. 
But when Jesus says this, we need to think about this in a different way. We need to think deeper, not more. More is stacking righteous deeds. That's what the Pharisees did. They did righteous things, and they tried to have a long list of what they did. In other words, their righteousness would be like many of your college applications. What did I ever possibly do as community service? How many of those can I stack up together? It doesn't really say anything about our character or who we are. Deeper, on the other hand, is a transformed heart of character that looks like what? The Beatitudes. That doesn't say, I do, but rather says, I am. So my junior year of high school, I took AP Biology, uh, which was a mistake. Because I'm not that smart. And on the practice test, after I'd already paid to take the AP exam, I scored a 1. I don't know if you've ever taken an AP test or not, but they score them from a 1 to a 5. A 1 is not good. In fact, a 1 is the opposite of good. A 1 is the lowest score you could possibly get. But I didn't want to waste my money. And so for about three weeks, I studied as hard as I could for AP biology. I memorized as much as I possibly could. I'd learned an entire year's worth of AP biology in about three weeks. And I made a three on the actual tests, which at that time got me seven hours of credit at the University of Georgia. You know what it didn't make me? An expert on biology. If you gave me the test right now, I would fail it miserably because what I didn't do was heart level change. I didn't internalize it. I didn't know it. I just memorized it so I could perform on a test. That is stacking righteous deeds as opposed to the professor of freshman biology at the University of Georgia. She knows it. She spent a life dedicated to it. It runs right out of her. She actually understands it deeply. So when Jesus says our righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees, he doesn't just mean we have to have more good deeds for them, like Boy Scout badges. What he means is we have to have hearts of character that conform to the very will and nature of God. Well, let's don't forget what's the purpose of the law. Not to save us, but to help us see. So then what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is helping us to see that in the depths of our own heart, there's not a very pretty picture. That in our heart, our deep level of righteousness, we are faithless. We have an inability to control our desires. We're marked by rebellion. I do what I want. It's self-centeredness. He wants us to see that, so we come to the same conclusion that David comes to in Psalm 14, verse 3. There's none who do, does good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, Paul repeats this. He actually quotes from a whole host of different Old Testament scriptures, and he says this, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. What Paul is doing is just simply explaining what Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount that none of us have a righteousness that can exceed Pharisees or scribes. That all of us, when we're honest about ourselves, have to come to the conclusion that we fall short of God's righteous standard found in the law, and every single one of us lacks the depth of righteousness in our identity at a heart level. 
which is why then a couple of verses later, Paul says this, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What you do is not going to make you right with God. Since, what does he say? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or what? The law helps you see how far short of God's standard you and I fall. That our best efforts can't save us, can't pull us out of the ditch. The purpose of God's law was to show us our desperate need. But the best news is the very next verse in Romans chapter 3, where Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Where did he get that from? The Sermon on the Mount. He just said the same thing that Jesus said. That actual righteousness came when Jesus showed up on the scene to fulfill the law. That doesn't mean the law and prophets are bad. It means they can't save. But the entire time they were bear witness to what? To Jesus. Verse 22, the righteousness of the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. And this is beautiful, are justified or made right or put in a right relationship with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What do he say? All of human history encapsulated in the Old Testament scriptures has been pointing us to our need to be righteous before God and the lack of our ability to do it, but God manifested or made known his way of making us right with him. And it's not the law, it's through Jesus. And that we have been saved, we have been pulled from the ditch, we have been forgiven of our sins, we've been justified, declared to be right in God, not because of our deep obedience to God's law, but he says by faith or trusting Jesus in our place. That word propitiation means a substitutionary atonement. Here's what the scripture teaches. That you and I lack righteousness, but Jesus came and lived a perfectly righteous life for us in our place. And you and I deserve punishment for our wrongdoing, this thing called sin. But Jesus was a substitutionary atonement. His death was for us in our place. And so when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees, what he is saying is it is impossible for you to do this on your own. But good news, that's why I came. So that I could be righteous for you so that I could pay the full penalty of sin for you in your place. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what is our hope standing before what God requires or his law? Our only hope is to trust Jesus, the righteous Savior who lived and died for us in our place. That's the point. Now I want to take a couple minutes uh, and do a, a little head level application because I imagine some of you guys are asking this question. And I don't want to come back to what we were just talking about, but I want to make this clear. Because some of you are asking the question, what is our relationship to the Old Testament or to the law now? Maybe you're asking the question like this. For me to faithfully follow Jesus now, do I have to unhitch my faith from the Old Testament? Uh, and I would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so I want to give you two 
key questions to ask to help you understand when you read the Old Testament what it means for you. Here's the first question. We understand the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we ask this question, how do I understand this law or this section of the Old Testament scripture in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? If Jesus fulfills the law, then how do I understand this passage that I'm reading in the Old Testament in light of the bigger story of what Jesus accomplished on the cross? So let me just give you an example. If Jesus is, as the New Testament teaches us, the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice for sin, then do we have to continue making sacrifices like outlined in Leviticus? No. Why? Is it because those sacrifices were bad? No. It's because Jesus showed up and replaced them. We now have a better sacrifice, which is the argument that the author of the book of Hebrews already makes for you. So the reason that we don't have an altar here where you guys bring in lambs like every once a month and we do some slaughtering and once a year we do a big like thing is because we believe Jesus is the fulfillment of those commands about sacrifices. He's the once and for all sacrifice. So we don't need those anymore. So in that way, we're not tearing down that. We're not abolishing it, right? It is just now obsolete for us. It's been replaced for some, with something better. This is actually what Jesus taught. Luke chapter 24, there's a couple of disciples that don't, don't have, that, that stumble across the resurrected Jesus. And it says that spending time with Jesus, here's what Jesus did. He explained to them how the law and the prophets were about him. Which leads us to the second question. We understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And the question you could ask if you were confused is simply this. How does the New Testament teach about this subject? I want to be very clear. The reason we don't unhitch from the Old Testament is because the New Testament authors did not unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't have to do that. What we see instead is a pattern where the New Testament authors are explaining to us how the Old Testament applies to our lives in light of who Jesus is. This is especially helpful on moral issues. So when we get to a disputed moral issue, the first question you should ask is not necessarily the cultural context in the Old Testament. That's a good question to ask. The first question you and I should ask is, is this a command that is repeated in the New Testament? So most of your questions about sexual ethics most of your questions about the way God values life and most of the questions about how you should love your neighbor are answered because the New Testament authors already answered them for us and told us how we understand these Old Testament commands in light of who Jesus is. So for instance, if the church is now God's people, not a nation, how do I relate to the civil laws? And so someone might come to you with a passage and say, hey, look, in your Bible it says if somebody commits adultery, then we should kill them with rocks. Except for the apostles, the New Testament authors, already told us what we're supposed to do now if someone commits adultery, which we are supposed to, as a church, discipline them. That's the new practice. Do you understand the way this works? Now, there are a ton of examples that are difficult to understand, for sure. This is not always cut and dry. These two questions don't always help in every single instance. It's not a complete system. But, but 
The majority of issues that you have questions about in this regard are answered in a straightforward way. If you just say, what does this mean in light of Jesus' coming, his death and resurrection? What does the New Testament have to say about this? Did the New Testament authors already tell me what to think? And most of the time, you will have clarity just by those two questions. You don't have to do gymnastics. You don't have to explain away things in crazy situations. You don't have to go like crazy cultural context, which honestly is so important, but most people use just to excuse whatever the text says. Most of your questions will be answered. Does that make sense? Because what I'm asking you to do is what the New Testament authors are doing. Now, that's head level, right? I hope that's helpful. I wanted to help you today. But I don't want to miss the heart. Uh, The reality is, some of us today, for the first time ever, perhaps, need to think about our standing before God. And that when we see what God actually requires of us, do you feel confident in your standing before God? Knowing that Jesus, and we're going to see this in the Sermon on the Mount, is not relaxing the law at all. Knowing that God's standard is high for our obedience and righteousness. Are you and I able with a clear conscience to say we need that? So for instance, helping old ladies across the street, even if you do it three times, is probably not going to be enough to make up for your faithfulness, faithlessness, self-centeredness, and rebellion. Church attendance, while good, is not going to be enough. Being a generally quote-unquote good person, according to Jesus, is not enough. But the good news for all of us today who are asking that question is Jesus is enough. That Matthew's gospel doesn't end with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus' death and resurrection. And that Jesus is what you need to or who you need to pull you out of the ditch where you parked your life. He is the one who saves. And so today, if you've never trusted in Christ, is the day where you could trust in Christ. Say, I'm not righteous enough, but I know Jesus was righteous for me. I can't pay the penalty of my sin. It's death and hell and the very wrath of God. I don't want to pay it but I know Jesus paid that for me in my place. And so I'm going to trust Jesus in my place. The Bible says when we trust or place our faith in Jesus, that God applies his righteous life to ours and his atoning death to us as a gift, an act of grace. And all he requires of us is to believe in or trust in Christ. And so maybe today is the day that you do that. And if you're already a believer in Jesus, I just want to remind you that just like the people of Israel rescued out of Egypt are in a relationship with God, 
that doesn't mean that God doesn't require anything of them after that. We are not saved by our obedience to the law, but God's commands are good for us because they teach us about God's character. They teach us how we can love God rightly and how we can love our neighbors rightly. And so we must take them seriously. Just because it doesn't save doesn't mean it's not important in our relationship with God after we are saved. Does that make sense to you this morning? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.